Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Lucy Hounsom. And I'm Charlotte Bond. It's high fantasy. You know the drill. Personalities are defined by race. Elves are pointy-eared snobs who are unbearably pretty. Orcs are barely sentient lapdogs. Dwarves love gold and mining. And this is how it's been, for the most part, since Middle-earth. But not only are these narrow stereotypes incredibly problematic, they are also pretty boring. They're cliches, tropes. And while many of us love our tropes, it is, after all, why we keep going back to the same genre sections in the bookshop. If we wanted to read exactly the same thing over and over again, we could. It's called rereading, folks. So what does a more modern interpretation of fantasy look like? Will there ever be a dwarf who shuns gold? An elf who cares nothing for her appearance? Or an orc who is more than a mindless thug? Well, we have A.K. Larkwood here with us today to help us answer these very questions. So, Cassie, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi, um, I'm Cassie, uh, also A.K. Larkwood. Um, I wrote The Unspoken Name and uh, the sequel, The Thousand Eyes, which uh, uh, just came out this week. Um, I live in Oxford and uh, I, I really like to write a book with uh, giant snakes and flying ships and all that jazz. Fantasy is an extremely trope-laden genre with a long history of cliches and stereotypes to live up to. But you've obviously loved fantasy in some ways or you wouldn't be writing it. So what are some of your favourite fantasy tropes? Yeah, it's interesting because um, I totally get what you're, you're saying about fantasy being kind of a tropey genre. But to be honest, I kind of think all genres have their favorite tropes and trappings because that's kind of part of what makes a genre what it is that that, that we keep returning to certain scenarios or character types or kind of bits of set dressing. Um I don't know if I necessarily have favorite tropes in the sense of, you know, I'll always love a book that has like a MacGuffin magic ring in it or whatever. I think maybe it's easier to 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 explain with examples from a, another genre. Like, for instance, I really love um, Agatha Christie and kind of uh, golden age detective fiction. But like, I wouldn't say that I like love a locked room mystery. It's like I really enjoy one that's done well. Um, and And same with fantasy. I like, generally speaking... I like the books that I like and they kind of elevate this, the contents within them rather than I'll always be like, hell yeah, I'll, I'll read any book with a flying ship in it, even though actually maybe that is true. Um, although I was talking to my wife about this and uh, she said, oh, you do love an evil mentor though. And that's true. I do love an evil mentor. I will always go for an evil mentor. I think that might be the one. Ooh, evil mentor. I like it. Yeah. I was just thinking me too. Yeah, no, I mean, I'd agree with that actually about um, tropes done well. You know, it's just actually you, you like the book that you like. I mean, I was going to say, I, you know, I love a chosen one, but there are some really terrible examples of chosen ones out there, which really push my love of the trope to its limits. <laughs> yeah, like I, I, part of what I wanted to do with both Unspoken Name and Thousand Eyes actually is kind of um, like taking the the chosen one idea and kind of thinking about what makes it like compelling and magnetic and kind of or like what the psychological hook is there and kind of what it would be to someone who was in that world and kind of operating in a um frame of reference where there were like chosen ones that was quite fun i have to admit i really did enjoy reading about all your chosen ones who then went down a completely different path and it gets quite <laughs> like yes okay which one which way is this character going and how is she going to make it different i thought that was that was quite good i found that because i i don't really like chosen one stories but i like this because it was it was so different and it was a case of yeah they're going down this way but actually you know what I'm going to go this way. And it was by their own choice as well. It wasn't some magic MacGuffin. It was, you know, through thought and reason. And you know what? It sucks doing this. I thought that was a, a really, a really nice one. I mean, did you, you were talking about evil mentors and I'm thinking about some of the mentors within the books. 
<laughs> they're not good or evil. Like I, they're horribly flawed. I mean, if evil mentor is something you really like, do you think he went into it and went, you know, despite really liking this, I'm not going to write about it. I'm going to make it slightly different as well. Or was it just you got swept away in the moment? Hmm. I don't know. I think, I mean, having said that I love an evil mentor and generally speaking, I'm always really into like the the trappings and aesthetics of like cartoon fantasy villainy. Like I love it. I love a big cape. I love a volcano lair. Um, I love like having a gargoyle that does my bidding or whatever. Um, but actually in, when I'm being serious and actually in terms of what I actually think about people and how they behave and what morality is, I don't think I really believe that there are good or evil people in this, as opposed to, you know, kind of like people who do good or evil actions. Um, so, you know, in terms of the various kind of mental figures in the books, um, I think I wanted to kind of explore the complexities of a, of a mental relationship or of a kind of like, um, like boss and employee relationship almost. Um, because I think those are like, there are a lot of fantasy, fantasy dynamics that it's very hard to imagine really existing in your real life. Like, you know, we all love to read about like a sad king and his sworn swordsman or whatever, but like, that's probably not going to be something that um, any of us are actually going to experience in life. Whereas I think uh, in terms of interacting with people who kind of like we look up to, or they've shaped our choices in life or we're working for them um, or whatever, that's kind of, you know, pretty much everyone has had some type of relationship with the person like that. And I think that the kind of the dynamic of like power and, admiring someone wanting to live up to them and and so on i think that can be a really good way of shedding light on character in general and kind of um also be a lot of like interesting fuel for making them go chase after the magic MacGuffin. it's really interesting you said about um you know liking a certain trope and then when you come to work it into your own writing it you realize the truth of it and i i feel like that there's something to be said for people who go on about wanting evil protagonists don't actually really want an evil protagonist because they want to like the central character. I've read so many reviews of books where readers complain about, I couldn't feel any sympathy. Um, this character's horrible and they're annoying. And I'm like, well, but didn't you just say you wanted... And a difficult or problematic, potentially evil main character. So I really think there's a disconnect between what we think is kind of cool and what we, it's a bit like, you know, when you play Skyrim and you want to, you go and nick everything because you can, because, <laughs> you know, who's going to stop you? And like, I'm always playing like crime characters in that. And when I, in my D&D campaign, I always play, you know, very chaotic, potentially slightly evil characters. But it, when it comes to actually behaving that way on trying to recreate those people in fiction, you really come up against the, oh my God, I, I think most people are actually inherently good people and don't really feel empathy with so-called evil characters that they, that, you know, that they, that they pretend that they want to read a story about. Yeah. It's funny you should say that because I'm completely different playing video games. I always kind of, I find it really difficult playing like, you know, Mass Effect, for instance, where you can have the kind of like, yeah, I'm going to be really nice and try and solve everyone's problems and resolve conflicts and so on. Or you can choose the kind of, um, I'm going to be a badass and I'm going to like sweep my way through the world and, and, and make my own choices kind of thing. And I always go for the first option because there's no cost to it. In real life, you always, well, or at least maybe for me, it's kind of like I'd always like to make the choice of kind of trying to resolve conflicts in a peaceable way and being really nice to everyone. But it's kind of like sometimes you're tired. Um, whereas in a video game, it's kind of like I can do this at no cost to myself and it's kind of nice. It's like the fantasy of always having the um, like latitude and resources to do the right thing. Um, so I, I don't. I obviously don't mean to to cast any aspersions on people who are kind of like, ah, oh, no, video game time, time to um, be a cool rogue and and do cool crimes. Because um, I can completely see that as a as a uh, route of escapism as well. Um, but it's, yeah, it's funny with with the kind of the idea of like an evil protagonist. Um, I have definitely read some books which had a very evil protagonist that I loved. Like it's not fantasy, but. 
Um, one of my favorite novels is um, The Debt to Pleasure by John Lanchester, which is the it's in it's in the first person narration. It's absolutely exquisite. Um, it's by it's a, it's the life story of this guy who's a food writer, basically. And he's he's telling his life story while he's going on a journey somewhere. Um, and it's kind of gradually revealed what his awful plans are. Um, and he's the worst person in the world. And it's so funny because the the like texture of the narration is absolutely exquisite because he's clearly a very funny and intelligent person as well as being just the worst man alive. Um, but the joke is always on him that he's unbelievably pompous and thinks he's the funniest and smartest person there's ever been. Um, so you're kind of, he, he, you really get to have your cake and eat it in terms of kind of like finding some of the stuff that he says quite like funny and interesting while also the whole time being kind of like, Oh my God, I cannot believe you. Um, and you kind of, it really works. You don't have any sympathy for him as a protagonist. You don't really want him to achieve what he's wanting to achieve, but you're so kind of like fascinated to know more facets of this extremely strange person and to know what on earth he's going to do that it like, it really works as a driving force to the book. Um, I highly recommend it. I was just thinking about the comparison between fantasy and a sort of less speculative fiction. Mm -hmm. And now I think about it, I could absolutely see your book being played out in an office. And then that sounds like <laughs> to say, but when I think about it, based on what you just said, I can absolutely see that you've got Sorway as like, you know, the grumpy employee and um, uh, Stephanie as, as, you know, her boss. And she's joined this firm with these great aspirations. And then she's like, you know what? this person over here is leaving to set up another firm. I might go with them. Isn't that interesting that you can take a huge fantasy genre and a massively, wonderfully well-built story and still go, you know what, that would work just as well in the office. I think, I think that's quite an interesting point. <laughs> well, I'm honestly, I find that quite flattering because um, I, I, I always, the thing I always aspire to do is to kind of use everything that I like about fantasy, but also try to make the emotions and relationships as grounded as possible. And I guess maybe that reflects um, kind of where I was in my life at the time I was writing Unspoken Name, which was kind of, um, uh, I was I was doing a kind of pretty mundane office job that it was kind of like, uh, it was fine, but it wasn't like galvanizing my world. Um, and, and kind of thinking about the sort of the, the kind of weirdness of workplace relationships, I guess, was part of the motivation for writing the book in that, um, you know, you kind of don't have a choice about these people you're spending a lot of time with and you're, you're kind of everything's supposed to be a bit at arm's length, but you kind of can't help maybe having strong feelings at times about people. Also, I um, had a really nice manager who I liked a lot, who was like my first boss. Um, he was really lovely to me. And, uh, I remember being really sad when she left. Um, uh, and just kind of being like, I can't believe, I am kind of feeling like a bit bereft that, um, I mean, she'd just gone on to another job. It was like fine. Um, that was kind of part of what got me starting to think about kind of like maybe this like employment relationship, because it is like a relationship of power and balance. Um, it's something that would be interesting to mine for like story stuff. Well, yeah. And rather than being tempted away by great power or terrible revenge <laughs> or something, it's just a case of she looks at it and goes, you know what? It's not quite working. <laughs> and I know that there's obviously bigger things at stake, but it can boil down to that. Okay, bringing us back round to the point. <laughs> um, so, I mean, if anyone hasn't read your books yet, but happens to pass by some reviews or, you know, just looking at the blurbs and everything, there's quite a theme in the reviews and so on that talk about how you subvert these tropes that are so familiar to so many fantasy readers. Now, did you sort of intend to set out to subvert tropes? And, and if you did, were there anything in particular that you, you really wanted to flip on its head? Sure. I think this is always a really interesting question because I'm always quite surprised to see people talking about the book being kind of subversive or deconstruction or whatever of, of kind of, um, the fantasy tropes because I think well <laughs> I've, I don't feel like I've ever in my life approached a piece of writing from a, a, a an intention to subvert or deconstruct anything um, I think I would find that kind of a kind of a sad way to go on um, like obviously sometimes spite is a great motivator sometimes if I've read a book and there's something in it where I'm kind of like um, 
oh, it's such a shame because this one thing was so good, but I hated the rest of the book, or this could have been so good, but it wasn't executed the way I would have wanted it to be. That can be very fun to be like, okay, but how would I actually want to do it? Um, But in terms of like intentionally thinking, oh, I really hate the chosen one trope, say, I don't think I would ever be kind of like, so so now I'm going to write a book which is kind of uh, explaining why that trope is bad and doesn't make sense or whatever. Um, I, I I don't think I would enjoy writing that. I think I always come at stuff from a, a position of kind of what do I like about things? What what do I love about even books which are kind of like old fashioned or now feel dated or or kind of uh, maybe there's not much of value to salvage, but I, I find it quite. Um, I I would always want to come to it from a position of um, kind of taking what there is that's useful and building something out of that and kind of leaving behind what I'm not interested in. Um, so with like, again, maybe taking the chosen one thing as an example with, with Sawway and the fact that she starts out the book as this kind of chosen sacrifice, chosen kind of mouthpiece for the God or whatever. I think what I was interested in doing there was rather than being kind of like, well, but actually if you were really a chosen one, it would suck. Or if your world really depended on a chosen teenager, that would also suck because teenagers are awful. Um, it was more about kind of like, if you, what I what I wanted to do was kind of explore the psychology of that. If you had lived your whole life knowing you'd been chosen for this fate, kind of how would that affect you as a person, and and what could lead you to make different choices if you were given the opportunity to, uh, if that makes sense. No, it totally does. And um, I think we were talking to Veronica Ross at one point about like the very topic of chosen ones, um, mm-hmm. because her latest book is exactly to do with chosen it's called chosen ones and it's about like what happens to the chosen ones after they've saved the world Hmm. because are you still a chosen one after the end after you've done what the chosen one is supposed to do um and i that's yeah i feel like when we're talking about subversion it's just an example of how many directions there are that you can kind of take these tropes in yeah no i totally agree i mean you were just saying that you didn't set out to subvert anything so I suppose it never crossed your mind that you know how readers would react to tropes that they that that they believed characterized fantasy that you were not um you know staying 100% true to when we think about fantasy and particularly epic or high fantasy there you know it's it's hard to get away from the fact that there are a core readership who are quite conservative and who have been resisting change ever since I started out and you know and that was back in 2013 and before then and I feel like we've had a lot of movement forward um, but this genre in particular tends to harbor people with fairly stick in the mud opinions about how a story and how its characters should be, you know, constructed. Do you, did you, have you ever encountered that or feel like, you know, you were writing anything that you were writing was, you know, deliberately not conforming to that? I totally know what you mean. I think in terms of this sense of a, a kind of like a weight of expectation, maybe in terms of how a fantasy book should be. I, I think kind of, I remember definitely when I was like first starting to write like novel length work when I was in my teens and at university and kind of thinking, oh, this is always just going to have to be for me because no one's going to publish this. Um, in terms of the actual interactions with people I've had, I've been quite pleasantly surprised that how open people have been to something um, that's a bit different. And to be honest, in terms of kind of whether I was wanting to do any kind of handholding or, or sort of to kind of like slip past some kind of subversion or to kind of deliberately shock I think I I totally wasn't intending to do either of those things I think kind of to be honest thinking very hard about like a potential readership especially a potential readership of like large numbers of hostile people I think if I was thinking about that at all during the writing process it would be a very good way for me to never finish writing anything um I think that kind of a lot of people, I don't know if it's the same for, for you guys, but kind of I've heard a lot of writers talk about um, writing and thinking of like maybe one or two ideal readers that they're interested in, in writing for. Um, and that's definitely true for me because I think that kind of 
storytelling is a very basic human activity in a way. I, I, I am not a, an anthropologist, but it feels like it's so essential to who we are that it must be something very ancient um, and kind of, but the idea of telling a story that's for an audience of thousands of people who've never met you and aren't from the same context as you and kind of, uh, you may have to anticipate that they're not going to come at things from, they're going to come at things from a hostile perspective um, is very kind of new and alarming. So I kind of tend to think of the audience as being like my wife and my friends. Um, and mm-hmm. I, 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 kind of know that they're going to have the same understanding of things and then kind of at more editorial stage where my editor will be reading through stuff and be kind of like yeah this doesn't make sense or I don't understand this or whatever and then it's kind of that's like another eye of someone who's not like locked into my way of thinking and talking about things and then the hope is that people outside that circle might be interested in in uh, reading and hearing the story but kind of like definitely at no point in the like composition part could I be like oh, I'm I, I'm really going to shock them with this um I just like couldn't do it I don't think yeah I mean that but it, that's a phenomenon that is so um you know exclusive to global publishing as a, a you know a, a form of capitalism and a business it, and you know getting your story into as many hands as possible like storytelling we were talking about storytelling being an ancient form in its in its most ancient form it was oral and the people you were probably telling the story to are your own clan your your people the people who you've grown up with and you know pe- people who include everyone from you know the very young to the very old but you're in your own place and i, I feel like that that is it's a very alien um concept to to kind of it's very hard to to talk about these things in the same um in the same category really because you know today in our global world your words reach so many more people who you you know can't your past would possibly never cross otherwise so it it it, i think it for for writers today it does you know it does bear thinking about this these unseen pressures that you know when you start to think about readers expectations and especially a genre as old as fantasy possibly the oldest one we have as far as genres go i think that that could you know if if you let yourself get caught up in it so i mean i think you're very wise to to not let yourself (laughs) get caught up in it because it's quite scary actually when you think about that there's a really good essay um by gosh i can't remember now i think it might have been Jeanette Ng about um kind of the the inner and outer voices of criticism and how kind of the various like cultures of criticism that have grown up on like YouTube and social media and so on kind of really if you get too immersed in those type of voices it's very easy for it to um be such a a barrier to creativity and uh and to kind of result in a, a style of writing that's very defensive and playing it safe and kind of constantly having to hedge and rephrase so that no one can ever possibly understand misunderstand what you're saying um which is really I've, I've definitely felt that and it's really exhausting so I just try to kind of um do what I can to not absorb that that type of thing which is pretty unhelpful I think we've we've kind of talked a little bit about tropes that tend to be more about characters and creatures and things that appear in fantasy but you know, again, another thing that I see time and time again in reviews of your books, it's just all about like the incredible world building that it's like really dense and yet, you know, it still moves, <laughs> which in itself is quite a feat. Um, but, you know, the setting of, of fantasy is a trope in itself, but you've also sort of played with that a little bit. And you mentioned you like, you know, things with like ships that go elsewhere and and that's quite a a sci-fi element rather than a fantasy element and where most high fantasy takes place on, on a single world and often a single continent you've created multiple worlds you know and made me just reminisce about Richard Dean Anderson going through stargates because that's my childhood but <laughs> <laughs> so like why did you want to bring this in and, and where did that that idea of kind of bringing multiple worlds come into this this high fantasy epic fantasy style world building oh so firstly whenever anyone talks about the like really dense and intricate world building i'm always like yeah i've pulled off this heist um nobody nobody knows my dark secret which is it's basically just like like a meringue like the the aim is always just to like put in 
a few details, kind of think of a few little things that catch my attention and try and really evoke them in in some kind of detail. And then I think kind of like where you have a, a sketch drawing where a few elements are rendered in detail and then kind of the eye fills in the rest that can kind of almost be more compelling than a like completely fully rendered illustration sort of thing. Um, I don't feel like I'm a very um, consistent or systematic world builder at all. It's much more ad hoc and impressionistic but if i ever if I ever managed to give off the impression that it's kind of like really thought through and really intricate then i'm kind of like yeah um uh my, my heist has been successful um but yeah in terms of the kind of um the the gates and the different worlds and things that's kind of um born out of that that uh i hesitate to say philosophy <laughs> um that kind of approach to world building in that like um it's kind of almost a, a collage of of things that have come to me or kind of images that I wanted to get across or you know like maybe I have a have an image of a certain landscape or I need a certain space for a certain scene to take place in being able to like make that happen without people uh uh getting on my case about geography like I love fantasy maps um i've always really loved them i have a very vivid memory of being about nine and working on my my fantasy map that i was drawing with my gel pens um and like you know like drawing in all the little trees and little mountains and stuff um and then some dude who was a friend of the family came and looked over my shoulder and was like oh you know that's not how rivers really work though um and i remember feeling so crushed about it and it's like i don't want to be that dude um and i also uh uh don't want to interact with that dude so the, the aim is to kind of create a setting which is sort of like free of the um the, the the tyranny of maps maybe that's putting it a bit strongly um although actually there is a lovely map in the book um and i really like it and obviously i was like i'm gonna i'm gonna make a fantasy setting that doesn't have any maps and can't be mapped um, and the then tyranny as as of geography <laughs> as soon as i finished the story i was like no there is going to be a map there i know how i want it to be um because obviously the people who live in this setting need to find their way around somehow. Um, so that was partly why. And also partly that I really love space opera. Like, um, I think it's 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 one of the genres that I like to read the most. And I think it's one of the ones where people are doing the most interesting things at the moment, like um, like Yoon Hali, Arkady Martin, Anne Leckie, and so on. Like some of the some of the writers who I think are kind of really pushing boundaries with that. Um, and I sort of wanted to get in on that <laughs> maybe that's not quite the right what, right way of putting it but sort of I love the kind of flexibility that it gives you that you can you can go from like these this like immense cosmic scale like huge battles although I'll never write one of those because it's too hard um and kind of huge like expanses of the galaxy down to like very intimate details of like people having like one meal on one spaceship in one room sort of thing um I think it gives you a, a really lovely cinematic scope to hop from one to the other. Whereas I think kind of the more like terrestrially grounded fantasy, I sometimes feel a bit bogged down kind of like, okay, how on earth are they going to get from place to place? Like, oh, no, I need to look up how long it takes to travel by horse from one place to another. Um, and I can just fall into a, a pit of research um, that I hate to be in and that it takes ages to get out of. Um, so yeah, I think that's, oh, and also I, I watched all of Stargate Atlantis. So like, you know, it's, it's probably left a mark on my soul in some way. Have you Googled how far can a horse run in a day? <laughs> like me. <laughs> well, I, I just tend to end up Googling um, kind of what happens to people's bodies in horrible ways when they're in a certain, when they're like extreme situations, like how much blood can you lose? How long does it take to freeze to death and so on, which I, I, I'm probably on a watch list or something at this point. But um, yeah, no, I, I know nothing about horses, nothing about boats and nothing about horses. Um, and I intend to stay that way. Uh, but unfortunately, the fantasy genre does require you to know about transport. So that's why I made up all the transport for my books, because uh, now no one can tell me I'm wrong. Uh, yes, it is a good, it is a good plan. Yeah, I've, I've got, I've, I'm too horse reliant. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> yeah, but I think you need to give yourself a little bit more credit about, you know, saying, oh, I pulled off this great heist because you you really uh, went for it in terms of <laughs> <laughs> building, like, you know, intense epic fantasy style world. And then, oh, yeah, well, you know, just to make things even more complicated, I'm going to throw in some sci fi in there with some 
like multiple worlds and just like I I mean yeah I I feel like maybe you've done I I don't know maybe it's just me because I find that intimidating but I I feel like you've done a little bit more thought than you're maybe implying (laughs) oh well thank you I sort of can't I always can't help being um maybe too (laughs) Uh, self-deprecating try try and justify like yes I do spend all of my time thinking about wizards actually um if you did spend all your time thinking about wizards and so on I mean you're talking to the right crowd so yeah no (laughs) definitely true definitely true um also I guess with the kind of the the mixture of sci-fi and fantasy things I've been asked about this uh kind of quite a bit about these books and I guess I'm it's not really surprising but also because I read pretty pretty much like anything uh like like sci-fi fantasy all kinds of speculative stuff i also really like like horror and um historical fiction and and um old-fashioned detective mysteries um it's all kind of comes from the same well to me like i i read things and i'm like i could use this um and it doesn't really bother me too much whether it comes from this comes from one genre or another and i think that kind of trying to get a consistent tone and voice for the books that you're working on it can be really helpful to draw from other places actually um uh in terms of there's lots of examples of of fantasy books that i really like that have a have a consistent or consistent is maybe not quite the right word have a have a distinctive feeling to them because they're drawing from something else like i was thinking recently about um city of stairs by robert jackson bennett that has a kind of like an almost cold war type ambiance about it in terms of the technology and the kind of paranoia um and i think that it kind of that's part of what made it stand out to me i think um so the the aim is to try and do something similar there i guess i was really interested when you said um that you draw from other places and you know you throw a few a few details in because as i was reading the book and looking at all the different worlds i was thinking to myself as a ghostwriter right this woman has either gone through and has written a mass of mythology and (laughs) geological stuff and everything for each different world or you know what she's just picked something random and gone let's go with that in this next one they're going to be in a big sand desert with lots of giant worms um so i'm quite quite pleased it was the second one because i thought that's that's just way much cooler just going oh we're just going to have deserts and sandworms and now we're going to have mountains and old gods and all this kind of thing um but when i was reading it i found that each world was remarkably different from the other ones. Um, so like the one with the the, reveren- the revenants, with the um, the hollow monument, that to me almost felt like something after Game of Thrones and in the north. But obviously when you're in the desert with all of the, the serpents, that was more out of something like Pitch Black or Star Wars. Oh, I've got Star Wars referencing. Yay. Um, <laughs> so I just kind of wondered, because it, it felt like there was a lot of sci-fi influences there, and because you said you picked a few random details, when you were thinking up these worlds, were you drawing inspiration from anywhere? Was it like, oh, I really love the the atmosphere you have when people are walking through the desert in, in Star Wars or um, in pitch black and that sense of loneliness and, and yet massive agoraphobia? Or was it just randomly you just went, oh, you know what, I'm just going to have a desert and snakes in this one? With each of the worlds, I would say it's it's something totally different that's been the inspiration there. Like, Obviously, because there's been kind of successive editing passes and so on, it's quite difficult sometimes to remember what the original seed was, because even if I've initially been like, and the next scene, it's going to be in like, uh, checks notes, flip through my card index, oh, I guess a forest, um, then obviously kind of it gets refined and combined in with other things. And there's a, there is like a certain imposition of consistency later on. Um, one of the main inspirations is like maybe places that I've been. Um, so uh, like the thing that I'm working on at the moment, which... Um, I keep telling people different things about and then changing my mind. So I'm going to hold off on saying what kind of book it is or what it's about. But um, the setting is quite inspired by like um, Cumbria in the Lake District because I've spent quite a lot of time there in different parts of my life. Um, and it's like a landscape that I know very well and feel very fondly towards. But it's a, it's from the perspective of an outsider who's never been anywhere like that before. Um, and so that's been quite fun to do. Um, and with the various settings in the unspoken names, so... Uh, the the revenant world um, with the zombies and the ruins and so on. That wasn't really. I don't know if I I, I loved the um, Song of Ice and Fire books when I was a teenager, and then I tried to reread them when the um, TV series started, and I was like, oh, this isn't the same. I'm I'm not sure I've got as high of a tolerance for this type of stuff anymore. Um, 
and I, I don't want to ruin it for, for myself. Like I want to hold on to my nice memories of like reading them on holiday when I was 16 or whatever. Um, so I've, I haven't reread them for a really long time. So I don't actually remember very much about them. And then I was like, oh, if I haven't read the books, I can't watch the TV series. So I've never watched it. Um, but the the kind of the inspiration there was like, I live in Oxford and there's lots of lovely museums there and you can kind of go and see these fragments of things and kind of all these inscriptions and and kind of objects that were clearly very meaningful in the ancient past. Um, and we can never completely know what's what's meaningful about them now. You know, like obviously there are a lot of people uh, who are much smarter than me who are kind of um, doing their best to get as much information as possible out of, you know, kind of like some, some fragment of a Minoan inscription or what have you. Um, but, you know, we're never actually going to be able to reclaim all of the context there. Um, and I think there's something really interesting and melancholy about what can you know about the past? And so that's kind of why I wanted to to have our introduction to Shithmili be in this kind of grave world where, um, you know, it's all about trying to to uncover the relics of the dead and the relics of the past and, and, and what can we learn from them. When you said they were inspired by places you've been, I just thought of the mountain with all the revenants and went, wow, you've been <laughs> some <fucked> up places. <laughs> but I'm guessing they were, they were less revenanty when you went. Yeah, I think I think that's fair to say. I have never been in a horde of zombies in my life, um, which is a relief to me because I'm not very fast, um, nor do I um, have any combat skills. Um, I like to write about people being in kind of like situations of physical extremity because I know that if I was ever there, um, I would I would immediately fall down and die. I did quite like how much your characters blacked out. I'm like, that's the proper response to being punched <laughs> in the face. That's, that's yeah, right. <laughs> it is. It is. Well, that's part of what made writing Sawai fun because she's very resilient and and kind of competent and can find her way around anywhere and so on. And whereas um, it kind of in in real life, um, like I'm I'm very dyspraxic and I don't have binocular vision, um, so uh, the the physical realm is a, a, a maze of traps for me. Um, so it's it's sort of quite escapist in a way to have someone have someone dexterous as a protagonist. When we're talking about drawing inspiration from other places, obviously when I was reading it, there are quite a lot of similarities between some of your characters and some of the fantasy trope characters that we've come to, to know and love from Tolkien. So the um let me get this right, the elf race pronounced Talanthofe. Um, they definitely looked elfish because you made a big thing about their ears and how they twitched and, you know, flat against the head when they were unhappy and things. And Sawway and, and her kind all have tusks. Um, and I was just thinking about how we've got all these traditional tropes from Tolkien. And Tolkien's orcs in particular have a lot to answer for. So when you were writing, were you thinking it was important to develop orcs as a fictional race beyond how Tolkien had presented them and that maybe elves shouldn't be quite as smooth and as charming as, as they are and everything else? Was that in your head at the time or was it something that just developed naturally as you were writing? Yes and no. I mean, to be honest, like as a, as a very white English person, I don't really feel like I'm probably the authority on kind of the the racial diversity of the fantasy genre um or, or shouldn't be um but there i intentionally did not really want to use the kind of like dungeons and dragons terminology of like elves and orcs and so on although there obviously is kind of some inspiration there definitely and um kind of in terms of giving people something to latch on to with the book like not Obviously, if someone hasn't picked up the book, they're not going to know any of the special terminology that's in there. Um, it totally makes sense outside of the world of the narrative to kind of say like, oh, there's elves in this book, there's orcs in this book or whatever. The reason I wanted to use those trappings is because mostly I think they're cool. Um, I, I like the idea of having a world of kind of where there is no kind of like human baseline normal. Um, uh, and, and kind of the fun of writing a fantasy book is that you can have all kinds of fantastical peoples um, within it. I mean, I was also going to say, because one of the things that it, it always brings to mind for me, which I think Lucy will be able to sort of agree with me here, is, is sort of going back and reading um, the Belgariad. And You're right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, and... I'm I'm a big fan of the Bulgarian. Like I I find it really fun and it's real comfort reading for me. But at the same time, 
you read this fantasy book and you're like, why are like all the people from a certain country like why do they all have the exact same personality they only have like specific uh traits that they can and can't have or you know the, the interests that they can have or and so on and so forth and i feel that that has come a lot from tolkien i think he has a lot to answer for for things like what you see in the bulgariad and, and other f- similar kind of genre uh epic fantasy type stories but on the one hand we find it i find it problematic you know especially i mean orcs are a particular um you know an obvious one because they're often present since tolkien they're you know presented as sort of the the barbarians they usually portrayed as dark skin they're you know they're kind of you know, second-class citizens. They're forced to do the bidding of whoever is in power. and that's They have a low level of literacy. There's yeah. just, the tropes go on, don't they? Yes, yeah, and it's, it's very problematic. But I find it just really kind of bizarre that, that not just that we have these problematic tropes, but that it's such a thing to have, like, specific kinds of people or specific kinds of races that only have certain kinds of... <laughs> positions of power and all this sort of stuff and and what i find interesting in your book whether or not you decided to do it deliberately was that you have an orc or an orcish type character you know playing off those tropes who actually gets to be more than what they're usually portrayed as and and you know gets to it, it's like igor suddenly becoming the main protagonist <laughs> but it's good i would write because... that book i would write about <laughs> eagle becoming the main protagonist i'd love to do that that's a brilliant idea um well yeah as long as I... you mention me in the the credits oh there. i will do i will do you'll get an acknowledgement yeah for sure um i have i also have a certain affection for the bulgariad because i have a very like aesthetic story about um reading it which was that um I, I took myself to Paris and it was kind of the first time I'd been out of the country by myself um, and I got very lost and I didn't speak French as well as I thought I did. Um, and it was kind of really an awful trip, to be honest, and I, I couldn't afford to do anything. Um, but I did buy some paperbacks of the Bulgariad and I just kind of like sat in the room in the hostel and read them and uh, and kind of would occasionally like look out of the window at Paris and be like, no, I'm going to read my book instead. <laughs> um uh, and the um, the the Snake Kingdom made made a big impression on me. Um, I seem to remember there being some like very weird vibes there, but I was just kind of like, ah, yes, Snake Kingdom. I'm sure this won't awaken anything in me. Um, but yeah, like it's it's been interesting to me in terms of the reception of the unspoken name. In that, a lot of people have been, I would say, the majority of people have been um, very receptive to the idea of having like an orc ish protagonist. Um, and I've had, a, but but it's interesting to have seen a couple of responses that are kind of like, oh, we wanted, I was disappointed having been promised an orcish protagonist because I wanted her to be more orc-like. And, and this was just like a, like a human with tusks. And I, that kind of left me being like, what? Um, because, you know, kind of like, what is a person, <laughs> I guess? Um, uh, the, the, there is definitely this tendency in fantasy, I think, to have kind of all, all cultures as a, as like everyone in this culture is the same person. Um, uh, and it's just kind of, I can see why it arises out of this kind of storytelling tradition that's very kind of like, um, you know, in the case of Tolkien, kind of about the the like clash of different factions of elves and so on, um, that, that, that kind of, that type of characterization as a literary device would come from there. But in terms of writing like a at least what i attempt to do of like a more individual character focused sort of fantasy that's more about the emotional journey of a a single character or small group of characters um it kind of doesn't really make sense to write any person as kind of like the exemplar of the culture that they're from like that's just not what people are like and like i mean actually that's kind of a fascinating idea actually is the idea of writing someone i'm sorry are you are you going to say that not all Australians are like me? I, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously representative of my entire country. They are all exactly like me. Uh, all burn really easily. Uh, can't swim very well. 
yeah, I'm I'm the perfect example of an Australian. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, I'll, I'll I'll bear this in mind. Um, uh, when writing your ego book. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's going to be about the Australian ego. <laughs> um, uh, Name of Megan. <laughs> Meagle. Meagle. <laughs> yes. I'm really sorry, sorry Cassie. We diversified that. Please go back. To your <laughs> um, what was I saying? I think this kind of like, to, honestly, I, I was quite surprised by like a bizarre strain of racial essentialism, to be honest, from kind of like, but but applied to a fictional race that doesn't really exist. Um, it was very odd. It, it just goes to show why we asked this question in the first place. <laughs> so clearly there still exists this rather, you know, ingrained culture in this genre of, you know, people have expectations and they bring those, you know, whether consciously or unconsciously, they, they bring those to every um, piece of media they consume. Yeah. And it's like, you want to say, orcs aren't real. It's it's interesting that you guys mentioned Tolkien because um, it's painful sometimes to reckon with the fact that like, this is a book that I really loved, like this Lord of the Rings, obviously, um, that I really loved for a lot of my life and that's been very formative on my work and so on. And there's still, I think, a lot that's valuable there, but then also kind of, what am I saying with this? The post-colonial reading of it to, to sort of see the, the kind yeah, of... Yeah, yeah, kind of. Um, negative impacts. But So I here's, here's some background for you. I No, don't get her on her horse. <laughs> it's too late. I, I despise Tolkien, uh, but Lucy and Charlotte love it. Um, but I, I can see. Look, I, I can totally appreciate it for having set up some wonderful elements of genre and finding a beautiful kind of fantastical escapism that has, you know, just absolutely inspired children and adults f- ever since it was published. And I think that's wonderful. But I do really dislike the whole racial essentialism that has come out of it and and other things i i think it also has a women problem and other things but as you say like there's still a lot that's really good there um but you know for me it's really great to see books like yours coming out where you have more going on and you're not being while you're inspired by and obviously paying homage to these, you know, like really beautiful parts of the genre and Tolkien and just, yeah, fantasy in general, you're still taking them and and kind of bringing it uh, up to speed. It's like, you know, suddenly bringing it into our generation and, and not being kind of just regurgitating everything that was before because they sort of felt like a period that between Tolkien and obviously – Obviously, there are exceptions. You know, Le Guin did her own thing, and she was bloody marvelous. But, uh, for instance, um, she is she is very good. Yes, um, perhaps but, you my know, favorite then, writer. Um, oh, yes, she, I mean she's wonderful. Um, but you know, there there was kind of this trend of just keeping regurgitating the same thing over and over again. But then, I think recently we've had writers like you and, and others who are actually even though you claim not to have done it consciously, but it's just, it's wonderful to see basically that you're bringing in elements of the genre that are wonderful, but also giving them a new lease of life, I guess. (laughs) This was just our way of saying, thank you for doing what you're doing. (laughs) Well, I, I, I don't want to take too much credit. I think that kind of there's, I, I feel very lucky to be honest, to be kind of writing and working in a time when, I think that like the the sci-fi and fantasy genre is like more more open to new and different voices than it has been for a while. You know, uh, there's 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 more ground to cover, but it's very cool because it means I get to read books that are different, um, and yeah, it makes me me feel there's more more space to do interesting interesting and weird stuff. Yeah, and like you said, I think it's really interesting that you then have done this with something that's sort of epic or high fantasy and then bringing in the sci-fi and space opera elements because I think, you know, as you said, you love the the space opera coming out now. I think the space opera that we're seeing now is amazing and the diversity and the the just like the 
just everything coming out of space opera right now, I think is awesome. And so I think it's quite interesting that you then picked up on some of those elements in in yours as well to bring that sort of into the more uh, high and epic fantasy. Yeah, I love space opera because I think that kind of there's there's something about it maybe that because there is something kind of that's that's almost a bit inherently ridiculous about having this having like an incredible melodrama playing out in space and having these like huge personalities and loads of different settings and um and all kinds of shenanigans going on that it doesn't really feel trammeled um I guess is maybe maybe what I'm looking for that there's kind of because the suspension of disbelief is already there you can kind of do whatever you want and I really like that um like I, I especially really, really love like you've have you you've mentioned it, so you've probably already you've mentioned that you love space opera, so you've probably already read them, but um uh Yoon Hali's uh Nine Fox Gambit books are just top notch, the best. Um absolutely love them. Like I've been going through a really uh depressing phase of kind of oh, I don't feel inspired by anything. And then I, I read Nine Fox Gambit when that came out and was just kind of like I feel so energized by how weird and great this is, just like the language and the world and um everything about it it was like it was honestly a big in, uh, influence on unspoken name to be honest um yeah amazing <laughs> i think this would be a wonderful opportunity to ask cassie how she would introduce her books to a new reader who hasn't discovered them before I always get asked this, and I'm not very good at doing it because I don't think I'm um, naturally a, a soundbite type of person in that I love to ramble on and on for hours. Um, but I guess the core of the books for me is that they are a swords and sorcery adventure with very grounded characterization. So it's about uh, relatable problems such as uh, hating your coworker, but also maybe you have a sword um, and maybe there's a big snake and you get to um, explore some ruined worlds and find some treasures um, and unfortunately, the annoying coworker is still there, and there's nothing you can do about it. Do you know what? It sounds just like my D and D campaign. So you <laughs> sold it to me. <laughs> I would totally read a book that was had the tagline "You hate your coworker, but you also have a sword." Yes, but can you use the sword on the coworker? Hmm. I had a conversation with my wife earlier about um, whether the book would be longer or shorter if Tal had a gun, and we could not decide. So. That's that's a debate for the ages, I guess. Um, there are no guns in the book, but occasionally I'm kind of like, maybe I should just have him give him some firepower. But anyway. Well, thank you so much for coming along um, and chatting to us tonight. It's been lovely to have you on. Oh, lovely to meet you all as well. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.